Welcome to this podcast from Riverside Church Whitstable. We hope you find it helpful and encouraging. If you would like to find out more information about us, why not check out our website at riversideuk.org, Facebook page, or follow us on Twitter at Whit Riverside. So we've got this series called Miracle Maker. And um, last week, Jake did a fantastic job of kicking the series off. And this is the second. But I'd like to take the liberty to add to the title that we've been given. Jesus, the miracle maker, but also Jesus, the disciple maker. And as Jake said last week, Jesus was not a magician doing cool tricks. Did you get any bookings for birthday parties after that, Jake? Not one. Not one. I would have booked you. I thought you were amazing. <laughs> so Jesus wasn't doing cool tricks just to impress the crowd or the disciples. See, one of the reasons that Jesus came was to show us the nature and the character of God. And God is loving, he's kind, he's compassionate towards us. And that's despite how we choose to live our lives. Now, many people came to Jesus for healing. And I would suggest that they were not all perfect human beings. In fact, I would say that none of them were perfect human beings. Maybe we could argue that some deserved healing, like, you know, the widow's son who died and Jesus raised him from the bed. That was an amazing miracle, wasn't it? And maybe there were some that didn't quite deserve it because Jesus, on one occasion, healed ten lepers. One came back and said thank you, and the other nine just went off without a by your word. You see, Jesus epitomizes who the Father is. And Jesus taught that the sun shines on the righteous, but it also shines on the unrighteous. And Jesus healed with compassion any who came to him. He simply loves us and wants the best to us. Now, I want to suggest that the miracles that Jesus performed were also training events. They were training events for the disciples who were to carry on his ministry once he returned to heaven. So today we're going to look at a couple of miracles, but we're going to look at it from the perspective of training, of the preparation of the disciples for spreading the gospel, to taking on the kingdom power to the world. Now we're going to look at, well eventually we're going to look at, a day in the life of Jesus. And it's Matthew 14, and I'm just going to quickly summarise it. It starts off not good. John the Baptist has been beheaded and news comes to Jesus. Now Jesus was a cousin of John the Baptist. And of course John the Baptist had had baptised Jesus in the River Jordan. So Jesus decides it's time to get away, take stock, grieve for the loss of a loved one. But as they're leaving to go, the kind of crowd see what's going on and they just head off. And when Jesus gets to this kind of remote place, instead of it being empty and quiet for him to have that time of quiet reflection, he is faced with a huge crowd. 5,000 people. And it's interesting that Jesus' reaction isn't to be annoyed, irritated or angry. It's to have compassion 
on the crowd. And as the day progresses and the disciples can see that the evening's drawing near, they come to Jesus and said, you better send them home because they need to get something to eat. And then Jesus said, well, you feed them. And of course, they're a bit flummoxed by that. And Jesus ends up demonstrating how to feed 5,000 people with just a few loaves and a few fish. What a miracle. And then Jesus dismisses the crowd, puts the disciples in a boat, goes and prays, and then starts walking on the water. Now, I have to say, if there was ever a miracle that Jesus did that I'd like to be to replicate, wouldn't it be good just to walk down to the Tankerton Beach and then just set off? Walk across to Sheppey. Why? Well, yeah, true, why? Why would you want to do that? So Jesus, oh, you're in the room today, that's good. So Peter then says, can I come? And Jesus says, come. And then you know the story, he starts to sink. So that's a summation of chapter 14. You can read it in full at home, or if you get bored of listening to me, you can turn to it now in your Bibles. Who opened their Bible? Here's a question for you. Why did Jesus come when he did? Have you ever thought, asked yourself that question? Why did he come in the first century? Communication was mainly mouth-to-mouth. Communicating over long distance was pretty hit and miss. Slow, not reliable. You see, now, why didn't he come today? You see, Jesus could have had a website. He could have... He could have had a Facebook page, Jesus.com. A Twitter account. TikTok. Not sure about TikTok. Instagram. A YouTube channel. And any other platform that I might have missed. And I'm sure there are others. You see, the, the gospel message could have gone global. In an instant, almost. So why then and not now? What was so important about that time? What was going on, perhaps in the Jewish nation, the Jewish culture, that meant this was a good time for Jesus to come to earth? And we're going to delve today into the educational system of the Jewish nation at that time. Now, do we have any Hebrew-speaking people in the room? Oh, thank goodness for that. because I'm probably about to murder the Hebrew language with some of my pronunciations. So, in the first century, there was a deep, deep love of the word of God. The Jews called it the Torah. And they were passionate about the text, about the words about what they meant, what they meant to them. And they revered the text because this was the word that was given to them by God. And the Torah-observant Jews were just passionate about those first five books of our Old Testament. And that was, to them, the centre of life the teachings of God, how God wanted us to live and how to live well with him. And because he loved 
us so much. He gives the word, the text, for us to learn how to live. Now, the word of God is like honey. It's sweet upon the lips. It brings out taste. It just tickles the taste buds. Anybody like honey in this room? Anybody? Oh, good. There are some people that love honey, which is just as well. They went to the text in a big way. And God is a God who likes us to know things. But he knows that we need different ways of learning. So you're listening to me at the moment, but you're also reading a slide. So you're hearing and you're seeing. And in a minute, you're going to be touching. Because God wants to teach us in the ways that we can relate to. Now, all the God-fearing Jews at that time would wear a prayer shawl. And it was like a visual aid. It had this thing called a prayer shawl. The, the kind of bits that flowed out were called the wings or the kanaf. And on the end, they had things called zitzits. I'm not sure I pronounced that right. But these were long strands, and they had five knots in it to represent the five books of the Torah. Now, when Jesus talks about going into the closet, what he's talking about is you've got your prayer shawl, and you pull it over your head, and you pray, because then you're shutting out everything that's around you. But, of course, men being men, you know what we're like. Um, you know, they like to outdo each other. So if you were really, really, really deeply passionate and really, really orthodox, you'd have long, long tassels. And the longer the tassels, the more holy you were, the more passionate you were. Now, there's a legend about the kanaf, the wings of the prayer shawl. And in Malachi, it says... But those who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness, will rise with healing in its wings. The Kanaf. Now, does that remind you of a miracle that Jesus did without even doing it? Where the woman who'd been ill for so many years pushes her way through the crowd and she touches the Kanaf. She touches the wings because she believed the text. And she's healed. And Jesus says, who healed? Who touched me? You see, they were passionate about the text. So we're going to look at and understand a bit of the culture of the day. So hopefully, don't fall asleep. It does get interesting, I think. So back in the first century, their schooling system was a bit like this. It was based on what was called the rabbinical system. You see, the Jews knew that if they didn't get the text into their children, they were one generation away from being a nation that wasn't a nation of faith. Okay? The Jewish nation and the word of God are so interlinked, they are one. And so teaching the children was absolutely important to them. So when's a good time to start teaching children about the Word of God? Well, six years old, evidently. And what they used to say is, what you should do is you take a child and you should stuff it with a Torah like you stuff an ox. And they were taught in the local synagogue. And on the first day of school, Bet Sether, the teacher took honey 
and he poured it over the slates of the children. And the children were sitting there with these slates that were dripping with this honey. And basically he would say, taste the honey. Have you got your honey? Have you got your honey? You've got your pots? Okay, taste the honey. Because they're saying the word of God is like honey. It's a sign of God's favour. It's most enjoyable and luxurious. It tastes good. Taste and never forget that the word of God is good for you. Oh, are you enjoying that? <laughs> Taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, of course, we live in an age where you don't have to kind of remember things. In those days, when you started at six, they started to learn, the boys started to learn the first five books of our Old Testament. Okay? And they had to learn it off by heart. Every word. And they didn't have chapter and verses. They had to just learn it. The girls, well, they learnt the Psalms. And in Galilee, where Jesus was in uh, Nazareth, the girls also learnt the minor prophets. Of course, today, we don't have to learn anything. We've got Google. (laughs) And we've got Wikipedia, if you believe that kind of thing. Boys at 10 could enter into a thing called Bet Talmud, which basically meant that from that age, from 10 to 14, they would learn the rest of the Old Testament off by heart. Now, we used to challenge our young people to remember all 66 books of the Bible and get them in the right order. And that was a challenge. Can you imagine what it's like to have to memorise the whole of the Old Testament? If you were very good at this as a boy, you would then set your sights and your ambition on becoming a rabbi. Now, to get there between the ages of about 13 and 14, they started this kind of question and answer thing that they did. So they would say, what's two plus two? But the answer wouldn't be, the answer would be, well, what's 16 divided by four? In other words, you don't answer the question, you give a question that gives the answer. And it's an interesting way of learning things because it just means that you don't just spout back an answer. You kind of think through a different way to express the answer. And you remember when Jesus was in Jerusalem and he gets left behind, although I think he deliberately got left behind, and he's in the temple and they are just so impressed about his questions and his answers. Because he's in Bet Talmud, he's learning the whole of the Bible. And do you notice how Jesus has this way of driving the Pharisees nuts? By answering a question with a question. Shall we pay taxes to Caesar? Well, whose image is on there? A woman goes into this shop. It's a beautiful shop. It sells clocks. And she sees this amazing display of clocks. And she asks the shopkeeper which was his favourite 
clock. Now, this gentleman happened to be a Jew, so he asks her a question. Are you married? And she says, yes, but she adds the word, why? So she answers a question with a question. So he says, do you have any children? And she says, yes, why? (laughs) What is your favourite, he asks. Ah, now she gets it. Who could have a favourite among their children? Which clock is his favourite? Every, even today, where the Torah is observed, there's a passion to learn the text. There's a passion to engage in the sweetness of the word of God, to enjoy the honey of the word of God. So we get to boys of 13 plus, and they're in Bet Midrash. Now, this is where you're heading, you see, because if you really want to be top of the social pinnacle in the Jewish world, then your aim is to be a rabbi. You want to be the best of the best. This is the Oxford and Cambridge of the educational system. The most highly honoured position in Jewish culture, the spiritual leaders were the rabbis with authority. Now, each rabbi has his own kind of slant or interpretation of the Torah, how you were to love your neighbour. They had different ways of living out the text. And they would add to the text. So you not only had the Torah, but then you had a whole set of other do's and don'ts that the rabbis came up with as they taught their particular interpretation. You see, they might have a different interpretation of what you could do and what you couldn't do on the Sabbath. Some rabbis would bind things. You can't do them. And other rabbis would loosen and say, you can do them. And the rabbi's teaching was called his yoke. His yoke. And when you came to follow and be a disciple of a rabbi, what it meant was you came under his yoke, under his teaching. Now, my my rabbi, whose name is Jesus, said my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's not about a whole set of rules. It's about freedom. It's about relationship. It's about being in relationship with me. Now, at the age of 15, the best of the best went and sought out a rabbi, a powerful rabbi. And they'd say, I want to take your yoke. I want to follow you. And I will teach your yoke to other people. And the rabbi would look at this young stripling of a teenager in front of him and he'd question him. And he'd ask very difficult, complicated questions. It'd be like doing calculus and algebra all together as one thing. Who was good at algebra and calculus? Yeah, I can see you're all stunned by that, yeah. (laughs) Because the rabbi's looking for somebody who will continue to spread his yoke. And the rabbi wants to know, do you have what it takes to be a disciple? Can you become my disciple? Can you become like me? Can you do what I do and spread my yoke? And if you passed, 
the rabbi would say, yeah, I think this kid can do it. He can really be like me. He would say, lekakarai. You know what that means? Come, follow me. Leave your home, your family, your village, your friends, everything, and follow me. And you would devote your life to following this rabbi. Everything he did, you would do. When he went to the loo, you went to the loo. When he gave thanks for going to the loo, you gave for thanks for going to the loo. It was like that. You studied him. You prayed like him. You walked like him. You did the things he did. You memorized like he did. You desperately and passionately wanted to be like this rabbi so that you could be like him. And rabbis were amazing and brilliant teachers. They used visual aid like pots of honey. They used stories that people could relate to. You know, lots of things that Jesus used, weren't they? About agriculture and sheep and things like that. People, things that people could relate to. Now, there's one source about rabbis back then that says they would teach in a synagogue and they'd be handed a scroll and the rabbi would dance down the congregation for them to kiss the scroll. Can you see Jesus as a dance leader? Or have we westernised him so much that we kind of lost a little bit of touch with who he was? And sometimes a rabbi would say, bless you, go home, get married, have children, and pray that one of them becomes a rabbi. Or go ply your trade, follow your father, learn the family business. So this, understanding that a little bit more about that, does that help us understand some of the things that are going on in the text? You see, Peter and Andrew were fishermen. You see, they weren't the best of the best. They never got to the point where they could learn the whole of the Old Testament and then seek to follow a rabbi. They were plying their trade. But Jesus comes to these guys and says, follow me. Lekakarai, come follow me. I will make you fishers of men. And what do they do? Well, immediately they drop everything and they follow him. What's going on? A rabbi believes I can be like him. Now, you would drop your nets if you were back then. And then he goes on and he's got James and John. And he calls them. And they immediately left their nets. They immediately leave the family business to follow him. And Zebedee is now going bankrupt because his two sons have left him. But actually, he goes home and he says to his wife, hi. And she said, where are the boys? They're not with me. Well, I can see they're not with you. Where are they? They're not with me. And they're not going to be with me. What's going on? A rabbi has chosen them. He's picked them out. And he said to them, come, follow me. This rabbi thinks they have what it takes. 
Oh, there's another Jewish word. A rabbi with shmiha was a rabbi with authority. A rabbi who did not teach the way that other Torah teachers taught. That's quite difficult to say, actually. You see, they followed a tradition. But when a rabbi with shmiha came along, which was a very rare event, they created a new yoke, a new teaching, a new interpretation of the text. They would say something like this, you've heard it said, but I say to you, does that sound familiar? That sounds a bit like Jesus. A new yoke, a new interpretation. People would come for miles to hear the new teaching. Now, to be a rabbi with shmiha, you needed two witnesses to attest to the fact that you had this authority. So the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, now, by whose authority are you doing this? And what does Jesus do? He says to them, okay, where did John get his authority from? He answers a question with a question. Now they're stumped. Because if they say it was from God, he would say to them, well, why didn't you support him? If they say it was from man, they know the crowd will go absolutely nuts because John the Baptist was very popular. So they said, we don't know. So Jesus said, well, that's okay. I won't tell you. But his authority came from two sources. One was John the Baptist who was sent before him to proclaim the coming of the Messiah. And who was the second source? Anybody like to, anybody would like to guess? Oh, there's some rumblings out there, some people muttering. What happened when Jesus was baptised? The heavens opened and the Father said, this is my son, whom am I well pleased. That was his authority. So now, we need to get back to the miracles, don't we? Because we've done a lot of preparation. Now, if you go back earlier into Matthew, chapter 10, Jesus sends the 12 disciples out to preach the good news. Heal the sick, cast out demons. You see, they've been around Jesus, and Jesus showed them how to do this ministry, and then he'd sent them out, and they did it. They came back saying, yeah, we healed the sick. And demons, wow, they just got out in your name. They were beginning to understand they could be like their rabbi. They could do the things that he did. And then we've got this day when they've gone out to this lonely place and there's 5,000 people around them and the disciples are kind of saying, well, look, we've got to do something. These people need feeding. What are we going to do? And Jesus, their rabbi, turns to them and says, you feed them. Now, they'd seen him heal the sick. They'd seen him cast out demons. But they hadn't seen him feed 5,000 people with nothing. And so it kind of stumped them. So they said, well, we've only got a few bits of bread and a few loads of, a few bits of fish. And then Jesus does that amazing miracle, doesn't he? He prays, he blesses the food, and everybody, but everybody, gets fed. Now Jesus, I think, was trying to get them to stretch their thinking. What's the difference between healing the sick and feeding 5,000 people? 
What's the difference? And what he was trying to get them to see is, look, you can do this. You can do this. His normal method was, I'll show you. Then you do it and I watch. And then I'll send you out and you do it on your own. You see, Jesus is trying to stretch them. He wants them to be like him. So the day goes on. Oh, where did that come from? Oh, oh, my notes are in the wrong order. That's all right then. <laughs> oh, now then, question for you. Are you a disciple or are you a student? Mm. See, a student wants to know what the teacher knows so that they can know it. If you want to get through an exam... You sit there and the teacher comes along and tells you all the things you need to get through the exam. But if you want to be a disciple, you want to be like the teacher. You want to be able to do the things the teacher did. Now, I want you to cast your mind back to school. Was there anybody there that you would think, ever thought, I'd like to be like that person? There are exceptional teachers out there and they're good and they inspire people. But probably there's not many of us would go, actually, that teacher was so inspiring, I'm going to be absolutely like them for the rest of my life. You see, being a disciple of Jesus is a notch above. You see, he wants us to be like him. Now, I want to just clarify something. As we are called to follow Jesus, our calling and our pathway is unique to us. You can't look at somebody and say, I want that calling. That really sounds cool. I want to be like Jake, because he does these amazing magic tricks, and he's brilliant. And I want to be like him, because he preaches so well, too. He's brilliant. But that's not my calling. My calling is to be me. But there is something that we all have in common. As disciples of Jesus, we're all called to be like him. To have that same nature, to have that same compassion, to have that same love, that same kindness. To be the person through whom Jesus can still carry on doing the miracles that he did when he was here on earth. Jesus said we can do the things that he did. And then he added this, he said, and by the way, you're going to do greater things than me because I want to push you to a next level. And then when the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost, it gives shmiha to all those disciples. And suddenly they knew that they could do anything if they were just to be like Jesus. And from 120, we've got a church now in the billions now, were they, far, were they perfect, these guys that Jesus chose? Oh boy, they were not. <laughs> so there's hope for us, isn't there? Jesus didn't choose the perfect. He didn't choose the best of the best. He just chose ordinary people to be like him. So, we get to the miracle. Turn back because you've got notes in the wrong order. So Jesus comes to them in the night. 
and he's walking on the water, and it's a pretty terrifying experience for the disciples. But Peter has this light bulb moment. Why is that? Well, I think that Peter's kind of beat himself up a bit, along with the other disciples. You know, they've been talking about this in the boat. You know what? What did he mean, you feed them? What did he expect us to do? He's our rabbi, and yet he seemed to expect us to be able to do something that, well, I'm not sure we could do it. And I think they had that sense of failure. Have you had that sense of failure when you've had that prompting of the Holy Spirit to do something, and you kind of freeze, and you're saying, God, not me, not now, I'm too busy, you've got to be kidding And we do that because we often have fear of failure, don't we? We just don't want to do something and then fail and seem to fail. Well, if you read anything about the disciples, boy, do they give us a lesson in how to fail. They were good at it. And I think Jesus is saying, yeah, you're going to fail. But you know, I've come to learn in my long Christian walk that actually the outcome of something isn't dependent on me. It's dependent on him. And if we get a prompting to do something, to pray for somebody, to bless somebody, to maybe go up to a stranger and say, hey, I just think God's got something for you. We want to be like Jesus, don't we? So Jesus wants to be like his rabbi. He wants to follow him wherever he is. And it just so happens Jesus is out there on the water. And Peter thinks, I want to demonstrate that perhaps, perhaps I can be like Jesus. So he puts it out there. Can I come to you on the water? Now I think half of him's hoping for a yes, and the other half is really, really praying for a no. <laughs> Which is probably sometimes the way we behave, isn't it? He wanted to be with Jesus. And Jesus says, come, come on, follow me. Come, just be like me. Come walk on the water with me. Just come. And so Peter gets out of the boat. Now I think the other disciples are sitting there going, is he going to sink? Wow, look, Peter's walking on the water. And I bet they were secretly wishing, I wish it had been me that had said that. And then he takes a few steps. Now, I don't know what it's like to walk on water. I, I was tempted to get a trough of water <laughs> and, and, and just give it a go. I've even worn my sandals, just in case. Peter takes these few steps and then doubt creeps in. And he starts to sink. Lord, save me, he says. Help, I'm going to drown. Now, there are different translations of what happens next, or what Jesus says next. Some say, why did you doubt me? And others say, why did you doubt? I prefer the second, because I don't think there's anything to do, particularly with Jesus per se. Jesus is still walking on the water. Jesus is not sinking. Jesus is standing there. 
So what did Peter doubt? What went on in his head? And I think he started to doubt that he could be like Jesus. He started to doubt that he could actually be that disciple that could walk on the water and stand with Jesus. You see, the whole basis of the rabbinical system is you can do it. And this is why Jesus is frustrated, because he wants Peter to know that he believes that he can do it. Now, the word of God is like a diamond. If you ever looked at a diamond, you've turned it round, you see all the different facets, you get all different light shades and all that kind of stuff. There are different ways that people have interpreted this text, and this is only one way. And other people have preached, I'm sure, much better sermons on this text. But I want you to think about the possibility that what Jesus is doing here is he wants Peter to know that he can be like Jesus. And I want you to understand and believe that Jesus is also teaching you and me that we can be like him. I think that's partly the reason that God, Jesus came when he did. Now Peter went on. Did he become perfect after standing on the water? No, he failed again and again. But in the end, when the Holy Spirit came on him and it suddenly dawned on him who Jesus was and that he was his rabbi, that he could do what he did. Time's moving on, isn't it? So I'll ask you again. Do you just want to know about Jesus or do you want to be like him? Now, I'm going to say something, and it's, don't get offended. I've been a pastor in a church for 12 years. It's this church, actually, before it came here. Um, you know what things absolutely irritates pastors? If you want to irritate a pastor, just go up to him and say, oh, we could do with some deeper teaching. We really want to go deeper into the word. Whoa. And you know what? I just wish you'd do the things that Jesus told us to do before you start to talk about going deeper. When you're healing the stick and raising the dead and preaching the gospel and going to spread the kingdom, well, maybe then we can talk about going deeper. You see, we have, there was a prophecy in John. He said, I don't think the world could hold all the books that could be written about Jesus. Well, we've made a darn good try at it. There are millions and millions of books about Jesus. Do you want to know more about him or do you want to be more like him? If you're a disciple of Jesus, you want to be like your rabbi. You want to be like him. I want to tell you this. Jesus believes you can be like him. You see, Jesus didn't go out and choose the theologians, the well-educated, the best of the best. Now, that doesn't mean, if you are well-educated, <laughs> that you're excluded. <laughs> Please don't, don't read into it that. But he did choose the people that weren't good enough, the no-hopers, the bankrupt, 
the lowest of the low, the rejects, those that were ridiculed by their classmates, those who got married too many times, those who lived life at the rock bottom, those who weren't the fastest on the block or the quickest on the uptake. He chose those that would squabble among themselves as who were going to be the greatest. And I'm sure those disciples must have tested his patience to the nth degree. But he still chose them. And Jesus tells them in John 15, I chose you. You didn't choose me. Jesus turned the whole rabbinical system up diets upside down, which is what he was good at. He turned the world upside down. I chose you to go and bear fruit, to be fruitful. And I've given you all authority in heaven and earth to go out there and make disciples and teach them my yoke, to teach them my teaching. You see, Jesus believes in you and me, and he believes in his church to be the most unique community on earth. A community that can love one another. I know it's difficult. You might look round and see somebody and think, I can't love that person. But Jesus said you can. And you will. It's a community that serves one another, that accepts one another. It's a community that he's put here on the earth to change the world. To take his teaching to other people, to take his yoke, which is light and easy, to make disciples to be like Jesus, to be like us. Now, I always thought it was arrogant of Paul when he said, be like me. But you know what? Paul was following so close to Jesus. He was like Jesus. He was very much like Jesus. You want to go back and read his letters and see how much, when you strip out the bits about teaching the church about all the everyday life things, how close he is about following Jesus. So he can turn around to people and say, follow my example. Be like me, because I'm being like him. To live by faith, we have to follow our rabbi. Study him his teachings, his actions, his prayers, his relationships with the Father and the Holy Spirit, and to do the things that he did. Walk how he walked. I would say to you now, the time of theory has passed. As we come out of this lockdown and we come out of this pandemic, as a church, we're going to enter into a new phase of ministry, a new phase where God is going to take his people and use them to change the world. Because our, we are waking up to the fact that we can be like him. Thanks for listening. If you would like to contact us about this talk, to hear more or find out about Riverside Church Whitstable, then visit our website at riversideuk.org. Also, you can contact us through our Facebook page or tweet us at Whit Riverside.